There's something in our sin nature that doesn't like to be told what to do. We all have this sense of independence that wants to rise up when someone gives us orders. Now, this can have implications in many different areas of our lives. But it can have the utmost impact on your life in the area of your relationship with God. You know, the Bible teaches us that the Lord reigns. He's on His throne. He's in control. And part of being a follower of Christ is recognizing this. But even when it comes to the Lord, there can be something in us that doesn't like to be told what to do. And we're going to be reminded this morning in our text that God calls the shots. And that matters for you, and it matters for me, and it has implications for the way we live our lives. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Joshua chapter 18. Joshua chapter 18. We are moving right along as we work our way through this wonderful Old Testament book. We've made it to Joshua chapter 18. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is, I remind you, truth with no mixture of error. Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, the Bible says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we come to you, Lord, recognizing our need for you. We believe that in this moment, as we study your word, that all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So, Lord, as your word goes forward, would you open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit that we would understand your truth and be inclined to respond to your truth. Help us in these moments to to exalt Christ and his finished work, which is our only hope. And help us in these moments to understand what it means that you are Lord. And we'll thank you, Lord, and we'll praise you for that grace. We lift up this prayer to you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I told you, the book of Joshua divides into four different parts. The first part uh, we call cross over into the land, chapters 1 through 5, where the Lord tells the nation of Israel to cross the Jordan River from the east into the west part of that area so that they could Uh, take possession of the land God had given them. So the first part of this book is Israel crossing into the land. The the second part of the book we'll call Take the Land, chapters 5 through 12, where the Lord says defeat the peoples living there, uh, 
you will be an instrument of judgment in my hands to decimate the people living there, and you will uh, destroy them so you can take possession of that land. That's the second part of the book. The third part of the book is divide up the land, chapters 13 through 21, which we find ourselves this morning, where God begins to give different portions of the land to the different tribes of Israel. And, And the fourth part of the book is serve the Lord in the land, or thrive in the land, chapters 22 through 24. Uh, But we're talking today about the dividing up of the land. We've seen five different tribes get their land in past sermons, and now we're going to see how the last seven tribes were given their portion of land. And what we see just really clearly in our text this morning is uh, God calling the shots. We're, We're reminded from these chapters that the Lord is on His throne, the Lord Reigns, And what I want to share with you as we study the text is uh, four implications, four implications of the Lord's rule and reign. Four implications for your life, for my life, of the Lord's rule and reign. Because remember, there's something in us that doesn't like to be told what to do, right? So what are the implications of the Lord's rule and reign? Implication number one, the Lord has the right to be central in our lives, because God is the creator, because God is sovereign, because God is in control. He has the right to be central in our lives. Now, notice what it says in chapter 18, verse 1, the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at where? Shiloh, and set up the tent of meeting there. And then, at the end of this section, in chapter 19, verse 51, notice what the Bible says. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel distributed by lot at what's it say? What's it say? Shiloh. Don't 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 tune out on me. The first point. All right. At least wait to the second point. All right. At Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing up the land. So there's something significant about Shiloh because we see it mentioned at the beginning of the section. And we see it at the end of this section. And so the Lord wants us to pay attention to the fact that the tent of meeting, the central place of worship for Israel, had been moved from Gilgal on the edge of the territory to Shiloh. There's something important about this. Now, here's the first question. Why did they move the tent of meeting, the place of worship, why did they move that from Gilgal to Shiloh? Here's the simple answer. The Lord commanded that Israel moved the tent of meeting to Shiloh. Over in Deuteronomy 12, 5, uh, the Lord says that you will come and worship me in the place that I name. So when you see the tent of meeting moved, it's because God instructed uh, his people to move it there. That's why they moved it to Shiloh. He commanded that's where he wanted the tent of meeting. Later on, he allows it to be taken to Jerusalem where a permanent structure would be built. But as, as of this part of the narrative, the, the tent of meeting is moved to Shiloh. It would be there until 1 Samuel 4, until they're defeated by the Philistines. But this was the central place of worship. Now, practically speaking, Shiloh was more centrally located than Gilgal. Gilgal was on the very edge of the promised land. Shiloh was more in the middle of the promised land, which would make it more accessible to all of the tribes, which reminds us that the Lord desired, the Lord wanted the lives of his people to revolve around him. 
matter of fact, turn back with me to Deuteronomy 12. I want to show you what the Lord says about the place of worship that in chapter 18 of Joshua is called the tent of meeting. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Turn back there with me. Verse 6. Actually, back at the verse 5, which I mentioned earlier. The Bible says, the Lord speaking to his people here through Moses, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And so the Lord here is saying, here's the purpose of this place of worship that I have ordained that you uh, fashion. It will be a place for you to come with your households. You will come with your families, and you will worship there and bring your offerings there and offer sacrifices there and eat there and rejoice there. It will be a place for your family to come and worship the one true God. This was a place for the people of Israel to center their lives upon the Lord. The Lord, listen, the Lord desired that the the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, He desired that their lives revolve around Him. There were distinct times of the year, different feasts, where people would travel to the central location. They would travel to Shiloh. It was a reminder. Our lives revolve around our God. And that was the purpose of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting being put in Shiloh. So he desired that their lives revolve around him. And guess what? The Lord desires the same for your life. The Lord desires that your life revolve around him. And just like in this text, he desires that your your household revolve around him. You and your family, your kids. He, he wants your lives to revolve around him. And the fact that the, the tent of meeting is moved to shallow is a reminder of this. So here's the, the question for you and I to answer today. Does your life revolve around the Lord? Is he central to your life? Or or do you just try to fit him in anywhere that you have a little bit of time and space? That's a big question, isn't it? It's a big question. Because the Bible says in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus speaking, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness than all the other things we worry about. Food, shelter, clothing. God will take care of all of that. But it seems like we get the order reversed. We try to get our life in order and our life in place, and we think, when I get everything settled just like I need it to, then I'll get serious about the Lord. But things never get settled because you don't get things settled without the Lord's help, right? Listen, you don't straighten up your life to come to the Lord. You come to the Lord to straighten up your life. And for that to happen, your life has to revolve, be centered around the one true God. So I ask the question, is the Lord the center of your life? Is He the center of your family life? I heard Adrian Rogers say in a sermon this past week, the Lord doesn't want to be prominent in your life. He wants to be preeminent. See, some of you, the Lord's prominent. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Yeah, I do all that. But really, 
my relationship with the Lord doesn't really matter on Monday and Tuesday and during the week and on my job and in my family and in my recreation and in my finances and, and all. No, the Lord doesn't really matter there. He, he's prominent, but He's calling the shots. He's not preeminent. You know, our solar system consists of planets that are orbiting around the sun. And the planets that orbit around the sun are held in their courses by the gravitational pull of the sun. That's why the solar system stays in place. God ordained that it be like that. When it comes to our lives, we need to make sure we are orbiting around the sun. Not the S-U-N sun, but the S-O-N sun. The Son of God. His name is Jesus. We need to make sure that that our lives are orbiting around Him, that we are caught up in His gravitational pull, that He's in control, that He's calling the shots, that He truly is Lord of every area of our lives. And so, is He prominent? Or is He preeminent? The Lord has the right to be central in our lives. Secondly, the Lord has the right to define... This is important, especially in a pluralistic culture. The Lord has the right to define how you approach Him. Now look what it says back in chapter 18 of Joshua, verse 1. The Bible says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. Now, more specifically, let's talk about the tent of meeting. What was the tent of meeting? Well, the Lord gave instructions in the book of Exodus about this structure that the people of Israel were to build. It was a, a structure basically built with some, um, some, some wood and structural elements, but covered with animal skins and, and curtains and decorative items. And inside this structure, there were basically two rooms. Not basically, there were. There were two rooms. There was a, a holy place and a holy of holies. Now, in the holy place, there were these implements of worship, and the priests would go into the holy place, and they would keep the the lamps burning at the, the lampstand, and they would keep bread replaced, fresh bread on the table of showbread, which spoke of the provision of God. The lamp spoke of the presence of God. And, and they would keep the altar of incense going. There would be continual incense on that altar, which speaks of the prayers of God's people. And they were continually ministering in this holy place, the first part of that, that structure. And at the back of the holy place, inside this tent of meeting, there was this big curtain or a veil... And behind that was another room called the Holy of Holies. And only one person, once a year, could go back behind that curtain into that room. And that was the high priest of Israel. And in that room, there was something very, very special. There was this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. How many have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? All right, that's fiction, but, but, but it revolves around this Ark of the Covenant, right? There was a real thing that God commanded His people to build. It was basically a wood box, not very big, and it was covered with gold. And inside this wood box, there were the, the, the stone tablets that God gave the Ten Commandments on. So they had the Ten Commandments in there. Later, they put some manna in there, which is a reminder of God's provision. They put Aaron's staff in there, which reminds them that God ordains His leaders. And there's all this, all this meaning and symbolism. And, and on the top of this, this box, there was this... this a lid called the mercy seat. Gold lid with these two cherubim, these two angels with their wings 
uh, directed toward one another, and, and that was the, the mercy seat on top of the ark. And the high priest would go into that room once a year on behalf of the people of Israel with, with blood. They'd kill an animal and take that blood from the animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, here's the symbolism of that. Israel, you've broken my law. That's what God's saying. But through the shedding of blood, covering your sin, like this blood covers the mercy seat, you can be forgiven. You can be, or your sins can be atoned for. So all of this worship, all this activity, the sacrificing of animals, the showbread, the lamp, the altar of incense, the day of atonement where a high priest went behind the curtain, all this took place right there around the tent of meeting. So this was a major uh, spiritual element for the people of Israel. Now, let me tell you two things that the sacrificial system that took place here uh, pictured. First of all, the sacrificial system pictured the need for atonement. In other words, God is saying, you cannot run into my presence. If you just run into my presence, you will be struck dead. Matter of fact, did you know that when the high priest went behind the the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And again, that Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence. When the high priest went behind the curtain, he had a rope tied around his ankle. So if he didn't do everything right and his blood was not uh, scattered over him, uh, symbolizing his need for forgiveness, then he would be struck dead by God and be pulled out by a rope because no one could go in and get him. They'd be struck dead too. That's serious business, isn't it? And so God is saying to his people over and over again through this entire tent of meeting structure, holy place, holy of holies, the veil, the sacrifices, the, the altar of washing outside. All this is saying, you cannot approach me on your own terms. I'm God and I define how you approach me. I define how you come into relationship with me. And the sacrificial system pictured this need for atonement. So, for the people of Israel to experience and enjoy God's presence, to be in His presence, have a relationship with Him, they had to have three things. They had to have a high priest. I've already mentioned that. This person ordained by God that would oversee the worship at the tent of meeting or the, the later the permanent temple. And he was the one that would go behind the curtain on behalf of the people of Israel. So the people of Israel were reminded, you can't approach God on your own. You have to have a high priest. Secondly, they had to have a substitute. They had to bring animals that would be slain for their sins. That's what the whole sacrificial system was about. That's why they brought lambs and bulls and goats and calves. It was a way for God to say, you need someone to die or something to die in your place. You can't, you can't approach me without a substitute dying in your place for your sin. And then there had to be shed blood. The animal had to be killed on the behalf of the people, and the blood had to be sprinkled on the altar and on the Ark of the Covenant as a way for God to say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, there's no remission of sin. So for them to be able to experience a relationship with God as the nation of Israel, they had to have a high priest, they had to have a substitute, they had to have shed blood. Everybody with me so far? Now, this tent of meeting not only pictured the need for atonement, it pictured the results of atonement. This sacrificial system pictured what happens when God forgives. First of all, it pictured propitiation. It's a, a big theological word. You find it in the Bible, propitiation. But propitiation basically means 
that when you bring a substitute with shed blood, God, God's wrath is satisfied. He won't pour out your wrath upon your sin because he poured out his wrath upon this substitute that died in the place of sinners. And so when they went through these ceremonies and shed the blood of these different animals, they experienced propitiation. God said, because I've accepted the blood of another, I will not pour my wrath upon my people. Israel, you're safe from my wrath. That's called propitiation. The second word is expiation. Another word the Bible uses, a big word, expiation. And that means there's a, a carrying away of sins. A carrying away of sins. In other words, when God forgives... He, listen to this. He no longer holds them to your account. And this is pictured on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would lay his hands on two animals. The first was a goat that would be killed. And, and this goat that was killed pictured propitiation. Innocent animal dying for the sins of the guilty. But then the high priest would lay his hands on another goat, and he would confess all the sins of the people of Israel. Now, hey, by the way, how long would it take us this morning if we had a goat, and I was confessing all of our sins over this goat, take a while, wouldn't it? And he would confess all of his sin, all the sins of the people of Israel, and then that goat would be led out of the camp and taken into the wilderness. And when the people of Israel saw this goat being taken into the wilderness, that pictured their sin being taken away. God no longer holding them as guilty for their sin. Their sins being taken away by God's grace. And then the third thing that the sacrificial system pictured was rest. Look back in chapter 18, verse 1. The people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now they could establish the, the sacrificial system and tent of meeting worship because they were no longer fighting these huge armies. Now there's still tribal fighting that needed to take place in the different areas they were given. But as far as threats against the nation of Israel, they had all been subdued. They were at rest. And Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that this rest pictures the, the reality that we no longer have to work to make it to heaven. We, we don't have to work to make it to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We make it to heaven by grace. That's what the rest of Israel pictured. Now, the entire sacrificial system, High priest, substitute, shed blood, propitiation, expiation, rest. The entire sacrificial system pointed to one who would come and pay the ultimate sacrifice for sinners. Now hold your place, but turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. I want to show you how this all comes together. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 1. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Never forget I heard a pastor preaching one time, and he preached on this one verse, and he told the congregation to underline uh, the word, the law. So everybody do that. Just underline, if you have a pen or pencil, just underline the word, the law. And then he said, underline the word, can never, or the phrase, can never, underline that. And then underline the phrase, make perfect. And he breaks down this verse, has a lot of different verbiage in it, but here's what the verse basically says. The law can never make perfect. Now, everybody look at me for a moment. 
The entire sacrificial system did not save the people of Israel. They weren't saved by sacrificing bulls and goats and calves. That's not how they were saved. Matter of fact, keep reading. It says, otherwise, if the law could have saved, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder. The law was a reminder. The sacrificial system was a reminder. A reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you say, if bulls and goats and sacrificial system could not save the people of Israel, how were they saved? They were saved the same way you and I are saved. By faith. Their faith looked forward to the Messiah, the Redeemer that God would send. Our faith looks backward to the Messiah, the Redeemer who came. His name is Jesus. They were saved by looking forward in faith to the cross. We're saved by looking back in faith at the cross. Got that? Got that? So they were saved by faith the same way that we are. Matter of fact, look what it says in verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You're not saved through the sacrificial system. You're saved by what the sacrificial system points to. And the sacrificial system points to one who would come and pay the ultimate sacrifice for sinners. Their practicing of the sacrificial system was obedience that was a reflection of their faith in what the sacrificial system represented. So, people in Israel were saved by Jesus. Same way you and I are saved. And as a result of their faith, they practiced the sacrificial system, which was a reflection of who their faith was in. Does that make sense? Now, what's that got to do with us? Remember, here's what we've been saying. The Lord has the right to define how you approach Him. We We can't just run into heaven when we die and expect to be accepted by God. God, uh, God defines how we approach Him, how he, we have a relationship with Him. So, guess what? We need a high priest, just like Israel. We need someone to come between us and God and reconcile us. We need a substitute, someone to die in our place. And we need shed blood to wash away our sins. And guess what? All of that happens in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is your high priest. He is your substitute. He is the one who shed his blood for you, right? And because of that, you can experience the joys of propitiation. God doesn't pour out his wrath on you because he poured out his wrath on his son when Jesus died on the cross in our place. And you can experience the joys of expiation, your sin being taken away. Listen to me. God no longer holds your sin against you. It's been forgiven. It's been taken away. Some of you are here and you are followers of Christ and you are still holding on to your past. You you just can't get over it. Listen to me. God's not holding on to your past. God's taking your past away. God has completely forgiven you. That's expiation. It's been taken into the wilderness. And then you can experience rest. 
saved by grace. You don't have to try to achieve it. You receive salvation as a free gift based upon what Jesus did for you. And so the sacrificial system pictured what you and I experience. Salvation through the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for our sins. Now, keeping all that in mind, coming real close. Can you see how absolutely arrogant it is for someone to say, well, I prefer another path to God. You can talk about your Jesus, you can do all that, but I I prefer another way to God. Listen to me. You're not going into the presence of God without a high priest and a substitute in shed blood. It's just not going to happen. There's no other way. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus taught exclusivity. There's no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. For someone to say, well, I prefer another path. That is so arrogant. To say, well, I can figure out another way. No, your sins must be forgiven. You can't go into the presence of a holy God with unforgiven sin in your life. And the only way you can have your sins washed away is through the shed blood of Christ. And so we live in a pluralistic culture that says, well, all roads lead to God. That is such an ignorant statement. Think about it. If I said all roads lead to Hernando, you'd laugh at me, wouldn't you? Because we know that all roads don't lead to Hernando. And all religions don't lead to the one true God. It's only through Christ. So listen, you'll hear people say it on TV. You may hear professors say it. And they'll say, well, all paths lead to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whose word are you going to take? You've got to make a decision. I'm going to believe the, the ideas of a pluralistic culture. I'm going to take the words of Jesus as truth. Both can't be true, right? God has the right to define how you approach Him. And He has told us over and over again through the sacrificial system, through the types and pictures in the Old Testament, through the finished work of His Son, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, He's told us that there's only one way to be saved, and it is through Jesus Christ. So, the Lord has the right to define how we approach Him. Number three, very quickly. The Lord has the right to direct our lives. Look in chapter 18 of Joshua, verse 2. Chapter 18 of Joshua, verse 2. The Bible says, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going into to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set up, set out, and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances and then come to me. So basically what they were doing is they were going out to make a map. They're going to map out the territory of the promised land. They brought back these maps so they could determine which tribe gets which section on the map. How are they going to determine that? Look in verse 5. 
They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord. The, Lord, the Levites have no portion among you, for the priests of the Lord is their heritage, and Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will, here it is again, cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns and seven divisions. They're basically ancient surveyors. Then they came, verse 9, to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land of the people of Israel to each his portion. So they went and made a map. They came back and they divided the map into seven areas. And then Joshua cast lots, and whoever the lots fell to is how they determined which tribe went into which part of the land. As a matter of fact, the remainder of chapter 18 and 19 is a description of the land the seven different tribes were given. Now, here's the deal. Why were they casting lots? By them casting lots, they were taking the decisions out of human hands. Joshua here is not determining which tribe gets which territory, He's casting lots and saying, Lord, you direct us through the lots. And if a certain lot falls to, to, to this tribe, we'll give them this part of land. And through the casting of lots, by the way, there's biblical debate over what the casting of lots was, exactly how that looked. But basically, it was the people putting the decision in God's hands. Uh, Modern-day equivalent would be rolling dice, right? That would be you throw some things, you don't know what, how they're going to come out when they stop. They would cast lots, and they would trust God to, to, to cause those lots to fall exactly the way he wanted them to fall. So God is the one that made the decisions about which tribe got which piece of land. And just like the tribes in the promised land, we have been given our assignments by God. God determines where they go. And just like the people of Israel, God gives us our assignments. We talked about this a little bit last week, about God determines our station in life. But here's what I want you to understand. Our lives are in His hands. Our lives are in His hands. He has the right to direct our lives. Now, thinking about the casting of lots, listen to what it says in Psalm 16:5. David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You hold my lot. Lot. In other words, God, I trust you to direct me. I trust you to give me my assignment. You're the one who's in control. You're the one who's directing my life. Del Ralph Davis says this, Only as I'm convinced that my times are in his hands and that Yahweh really does hold my lot can I be kept from bitterness and discontent. There is by strange chemistry something oddly consoling when I realize in a fresh way that my present lot is what my Lord has intended for me. Now let me ask you a question. Do you really believe your life is in His hands? Do you really believe that He calls the shots? And do you believe that He has the right to call the shots? Do you believe He has the right to put you where He puts you? 
and to direct you how he directs you. Now, again, there's something in us. No, this is my life. No, he is Lord, and he has the right to direct your life. I've seen this before, and if you have this on your vehicle, I'm sorry, I don't want it to be offensive at all. But you may want to change it after this sermon illustration. But I've seen on bumper stickers, the Lord is my co-pilot. Oh no, somebody had that on there. You can leave now, you can get up now and go. I'm just kidding. The Lord is my co-pilot. And and listen to me, I understand the sentiment there, that wherever I go, the Lord's right there beside me. I get that. But notice, wherever I go. A, A better way to say that is, the Lord is my pilot. He, he, he's the one setting the direction. He's the one setting the course. And my life is based on Him. It's centered around Him. He is the one who directs my life. And so the Lord has that right to direct you and to direct me, which leads me to the fourth thing, and we'll be through. God is the one who calls the shots. Because of that, the Lord has the right to be central in our lives. The Lord has the right to define how we approach Him. The Lord has the right to direct our lives. And fourth, the Lord has the right to reward faithfulness. Now, this section of Scripture that deals with the dividing up of the promised land, the third section in the outline of Joshua, begins with Caleb getting his land. And it ends in chapter 19, 49 through 50 with Joshua getting his land. Look what it says at the end of chapter 19. This is verse 49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked him, not Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. So in this entire section of Joshua, the dividing up of the land, we see the two bookends. Caleb at the beginning and Joshua at the end. Why are Caleb and Joshua bookending this section of Scripture? Because the Lord is highlighting that He is rewarding the faithfulness of Joshua and Caleb. Remember in Numbers 14, when they sent spies into the land, they came back and 10 of the 12 said, Oh, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's flowing with milk and honey, but we cannot defeat the people living there. So we dare not do what God's told us to do and go into the land. But two, Joshua and Caleb said, God told us to go. God will give us the strength. God will give us the victory. We should obey. We should go into the land. And it made the other folks, the the nation of Israel, so angry at Joshua and Caleb for standing for the Lord that they wanted to stone them. So God says, I'm going to let you wander in the wilderness for 40 years till this unbelieving generation dies off. But two of you will get to go into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua. You see, Joshua and Caleb were rewarded with entering into the promised land because of their courageous faith. They stood for truth. They stood against the majority. And God rewarded them. That's why they're the bookends of this section. That's why God gave them territory in the promised land. You see, and some of you need to hear this this morning. Nothing you do 
for God goes unnoticed by God. I'll say it again. Nothing you do for God goes unnoticed by God. And the Lord promises to reward your faithfulness. Over in Hebrews 10, 32-39, there's this promise that God will reward those who persevere and serve Him and live for Him. So nothing you do for God goes unnoticed by God, and the Lord promises to reward your faithfulness. He's God. He's, he's sovereign. And He has the right to reward His people. And so do you need some encouragement to get up and get busy serving the Lord? To live for Him, knowing that nothing you do goes unnoticed, knowing that one day you you will be rewarded for your courageous and faithful service. You know, there's a trend in in youth sports, and I'm not against it per se. Uh, I, I, I coach youth sports, and, and I've given these out, but the trend is participation medals. That if if you're just on the team, you get a medal, right? And I get that. I think I, you know, I understand that sentiment again. But, but here's what I want you to understand: there are no rewards in heaven for just being on the team. I mean, in Christ, you get heaven by grace. Your sins are washed away by grace as a gift. But rewards will be based upon how you served Him as a Christian, how you lived your Christian life. wonder if there will be some disappointment and regret in heaven because we did not live our lives fully for the Lord. Say, so wait a minute, Wade. There are no tears in heaven. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says He will wipe away every tear. Right? I don't know about you. But when it's all said and done, I want to hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to be rewarded for courageous faith. Rewarded for the way I live my Christian life. Think about it. Our sins have been washed away. We've been given the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the church for encouragement. Why would we waste our lives and not live for Him? I look forward to those rewards. And here's why I look forward to those rewards. The Bible says in Revelation that there will be elders with crowns. And the Bible speaks of our rewards often as crowns. A crown of righteousness and, and things of that nature. Crown of life. And the Bible pictures these elders in heaven taking their crowns and casting them at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. And won't that be incredible? Now listen to me. When that time comes, don't you want to have something you can cast at His feet? Don't you want to have something to say, Jesus, you were so faithful to me. And as an act of worship, here was my faithfulness to you. Now may you get all the glory from my life. The Lord has the right to reward faithfulness. But here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with. You and I need to recognize and submit to God's awesome authority over our lives. We need to recognize, submit to God's awesome authority over our lives. Because there's something in us that doesn't like to be told what to do. 
but the Lord reigns. Amen? And we should respond to His awesome authority, living for His glory. Will you bow your head?